Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. First Peter tells us in chapter 3 we ought to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts and be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks us, right, to give a reason for the hope that's in us. They're going to say, well, why do you do that? And when they do, give them a logical, coherent response. There's nothing wrong with defending your zeal, that it makes sense. But just recognize a lot of times that the people aren't criticizing you to get an answer. A lot of times they're just criticizing to hurt you. Have you ever been accused of being a Jesus freak? You know, the term was originally intended to be offensive, a label people put on passionate believers who weren't ashamed of their faith. Welcome to Focal Point. I'm your host, Dave Drury. Today, Pastor Mike Fabares challenges us to embrace the Jesus freak moniker and live our lives with the goal of pleasing God, not man. Our key passage today is found in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Pastor Mike begins with a helpful recap. the Bible says this group that you're a part of called the local church, how high is the standard? You're called to be able and willing to lay down your life for me, and I'm called to be willing to lay down my life for you. That's fanatical. And when your spouse or your friends or your co-workers recognize that you're willing to, 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 to lose a, a night of sleep, to go sit by someone's bedside in a hospital who is just a part of your church, you don't even know them that well, or you're going to give of your, your resources for a couple over here you don't even know that well that's struggling financially, and you start doing all this stuff, they're going to say, you're crazy. Why do you do that? It's too much. And I'm sure all of this added to the animosity that existed between the guy who was doing the right thing and the critic on the sideline saying, I don't like this. I don't like the way you're doing this. You're going too far. Can't you ratchet back? Can't you do Christianity in, a, in some kind of moderation? Why do you have to go to the extreme? David knew he had to because the command to love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind was not a New Testament command. It was one that Jesus repeated. It existed in the law and the Torah, and David knew it's all or nothing in the Christian life. It's all or nothing in serving God. And he gave his all, and when he did, people criticized him. How bad was it? Look at what she says in the next verse. David's stoked. He's just done the most godly thing he's ever done. He's been generous to God's people. He's been sacrificing burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. He's got the ark placed in this great new place. They've been singing. They've been dancing. They've been worshiping. They've been doing all this great stuff. He comes home to bless his household, and there's his wife, daughter of Saul, his first wife, the wife of his youth. And she came to him and said, bouncing her foot on the floor with her arms crossed, I'm quite sure, my how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. Laying aside your crown and all your royal robes in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. You were a joke, man. What are you doing out there? You lost all your dignity. You're giving everything away. You're dancing around before God. Like, what? Are, you're crazy. And she lays into him. Do you think that was painful for David? You bet it was. Perhaps it's painful for you. I don't know if it drives home as closely as your own family, but if it's not your family, you and I can identify, can't you, with people that just don't get it who are in your workplace, perhaps in your neighborhood, but all I'm trying to tell you is it's expected. 
because every great person in the Bible, if there's more than three verses written on their life, we learn they were objects of ridicule and scorn and misunderstanding. And when someone criticizes you and demeans you, it doesn't mean you're on the wrong road. It means you're on the right road. That's what it means. It means you're doing the right thing. You're living passionately and zealously for God. And God's heroes are always zealous. They're zealous for what's right. They're zealous for what God says. They're zealous to serve and give and sacrifice of themselves. And what was David's response? Next verse. David says to Michael, Look, I understand your concern, and maybe I did get carried away, and I'll try and ratchet back, and I'll spend a little less time at the tabernacle, and uh, you know, maybe we can recoup some of that cash, and you're right. You know, if I'm going to live in this world and fit in, I better, I better slow down a little bit. I got carried away. Forgive me. Please. See all that there in 21? No. Great thing about David is he doesn't back down. This is before Yahweh. And he throws in some stuff. I don't know if it really belongs here. I mean, you know, he puts in his jab. Look at the next phrase. Who happened to choose me <laughs> rather than your dad or anyone from his house? Appointed me the ruler over the Lord's people. Okay, well, I don't know if that was the best way to put it, but I like what he does. Last phrase of verse 21, I will celebrate before the Lord. I'm going to offer up my offerings. I'm going to give things to God's people. I'm going to worship. I'm going to get carried away. I'm going to get carried away. Taking notes, that's the second thing we can learn from David. Not only should we not be surprised by critics, which he didn't seem to be. Second thing you and I need to learn is not to be swayed by their criticism. David stands resolute. Don't be swayed by criticism. I know you're going to want to, and you're going to want to say, perhaps I did get carried away, and maybe I didn't have to state the truth so boldly, and maybe I shouldn't have been so firm in that meeting, and maybe I shouldn't have nixed that project because of that moral concern. But you, you don't go there. Godly people don't back down in light of criticism. They're not swayed by it. As a matter of fact, they stand resolute, and they stand firm on their zeal for God. And here is David saying, you know, I'm the king, and I ought to be setting the pace for this nation. And you know what? I'm going to do this. And it gets worse. Look at the next verse. I will become even more undignified than this. Wow. <laughs> and I'll be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, you think there's some problem there? I'll be held and honored by them. Don't worry about that. There's even a, a dig there, isn't there? Those slave girls out there, you know, they're going to hold me in honor because they get it, you know. You don't get it. They get it. Don't worry about them. I just need to tell you, if you think I've been as zealous as I need to be, I haven't. There's an encouragement there for me. I look at that when I receive criticism. Sometimes I think, well, maybe I ought to ratchet back, be a little bit more diplomatic. Maybe I should have stated it a little softer. And I go through that, and I'm tempted to do that. But when I really look at God's word and I look at my own life, I often have to say, like David, I haven't gone far enough. I really haven't gone far enough in the Christian life. Whatever you've criticized me about, you think that was bad. When I really contemplate where I need to be with Christ, I have so much further to go. And David says, you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> if you think that was something you thought was nutty, I should be giving more to God. I should, be, I should be more passionate toward God. I should be more unbridled in my enthusiasm and zeal toward God. I haven't even gotten close to really being a nut for Christ. And you think that's weird? Just hang on, you'll see worse. You know, I like that because what David does is he uses criticism as a motivation, not as something that pulls him back. He uses it as something that, that, that spurs him on, not as something that makes him contemplate if perhaps he can work his Christianity into a more diplomatic mold. Keep your finger here again and turn back to Matthew, but this time turn to Matthew chapter 5. 
Let me show you that that's what Jesus intended criticism to do. Verse number 11. You see the word blessed, but the Greek word really, it just means happy. Now, this is an odd statement. Happy are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Now, that's odd, right? Because that's not how I feel. People insult me and say false things about me behind my back and ridicule me and persecute me. I'm not happy, but Jesus says, no, no, no. Don't be unhappy. Be happy. Why? He gives us two reasons. Next verse. Rejoice and be glad. Why? Because, number one, great is your reward in heaven. Have you ever thought about it that way? When I get the critical letter that I was too bold for Christ, right? When you get the person saying you really shouldn't always bring up God in every conversation. When they say, well, could you back down a little bit on your enthusiasm about Christ? When you get those comments, every time you get the comment, you know what God says? He's got some tally sheet up in heaven, and he's going, okay, got to rake up some rewards for, for Mike. He just got, he got insulted. Okay, I got it. I noted that. And it happens in your life too. I don't know what that means. I don't know if there's a new sea-doo waiting outside my mansion in heaven. But something is happening. Some big nice thing is going on in heaven when God sees me getting railed for being passionate about him. You get ridiculed, get insulted, someone say something and think you're a Jesus freak? Great, great reward. Now, I don't want to go out looking for it, right? I don't want to target on my, you know, kick me, insult me for Christ. You know, but when it happens, I'm not going to get bummed out about it. I'm going to say, you know what, that's fine. You can say that. You can ridicule me. You can persecute me. You can say I'm crazy. That's fine. As a matter of fact, just keep going because it's just earning me some points with God. And God is rewarding me. And then the next thing is so comforting. Look at the last thing he says in verse 12. The other comfort in this passage is, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Oh, I love that. Do you know that every time you're criticized for Christ, it's putting you in better and better company? Because <laughs> there's not a great person in the Bible who wasn't ridiculed for Christ, who wasn't ridiculed for standing up for what was right, who wasn't ridiculed and called crazy and misunderstood. That's great. That makes me think, again, I'm on the right road. And what should that do? That should redouble my resolve. That should make me think, go for it. Be even more bold. Be even more enthusiastic for Christ. And I know this message is a hard one for people to swallow because they're trying to fit their Christianity into nice, acceptable, culturally acceptable modes. It doesn't work that way. And it's a foolish objective. Just give up on being normal. Forget it. You're not going to be if you're going to be a Christian. They're going to think you're crazy. That's all right. Now, I say all that knowing that sometimes criticism needs a response. And if you look back on our passage in 2 Samuel chapter 6, there's one thing you do note here, though there's a little bit of jabbing and sarcasm included, which I can't defend as God's response to criticism. I do know that he gives some logical responses, like saying, I am the leader of Israel and setting the pace and celebration. That's a good and godly thing. Let me just say this, if you have critics in your life who criticize your Christianity and, for, for instance, say things about your Christianity like it's based on a bunch of myths or a bunch of, of words in an old book that were rewritten millions of times or, you know, you're just chasing fairy tales and fantasies, let me assure you that the Bible is in favor of a logical, coherent response. And that's where apologetics comes into the Christian life, right? That's why 1 Peter tells us in chapter 3, we ought to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts and be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks us, right, to give a reason for the hope that's in us. They're going to say, well, why do you do that? And when they do, give them a logical, coherent response. There's nothing wrong with defending your zeal, that it makes sense. 
But just recognize a lot of times that the people aren't criticizing you to get an answer. A lot of times they're just criticizing to hurt you. And when they do, all I can do is take comfort in the fact that God rewards me and it puts me in really good company. You know, I can expect critics in the Christian life. And the second thing I need to make sure I note this morning is I can never be swayed by it. As a matter of fact, it ought to urge me to continue to be more bold and courageous. And like David, say to my critics, you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> you haven't seen anything when it comes to zeal and passion because I'm not the kind of person God wants me to be. He's not done with me yet. He wants me to be even more courageous, even more bold, even more resolute, even more zealous for the cause of Christ because the calling in my life is to love the Lord my God with all my heart and all my soul and all my strength and all my mind. So you know what? You can criticize me for being that way, but I'm moving even further in that direction. And you can do that with boldness. You can do that with confidence that God is in heaven saying, right on, good boy, keep going. Don't be surprised by critics. Christian life's going to be full of critics on the sidelines telling you you're nut. Don't be swayed by it. Don't be hurt by it. Don't be ratcheting into diplomatic modes. Continue to be bold. Continue to be zealous. There's one more verse in this chapter. kind of hangs there as an ambiguous statement. It's not an ambiguous statement. It's clear as to what it indicatively means, but how it fits into this story, I suppose, is up for debate. But the last verse in chapter 6 of 2 Samuel says simply that Michael, the daughter of Saul, David's wife, had no children until the day of her death. Now, if you know anything about ancient uh, history, not that it's much mitigated in our day, but certainly in a Jewish culture, in ancient Mesopotamia, if you were a wife, you certainly desired to be a mother, and there was no question about how that was critical and important in the social model of that day. And for a statement to be placed here at the end of this discussion that Michael, the wife of David, the daughter of Saul, had no children, that's a devastating statement. It's huge. It's giant. If you're tracking emotionally with this passage and you see David at the apex of doing what is right in the right way with the right kind of passion and you see this gal walk in and criticize him and you see him stand resolute, you're obviously going to gravitate to David's side of this thing and say, David, you're right, hang in there, it's good, don't back down because we know that's what the Bible says and you're going to look at Michael and say, you're wrong, that's not the way you ought to be toward people zealous for God. Don't be a stumbling block for Dave. You ought to be encouraging David. And so here we are siding with David and seeing Michael on the other side of this. And then, bang, right at the end of that narrative, here comes this statement. Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children until the day of her death. Now, it's easy for us, perhaps, to guess at what this means and say, well, God was really mad at Michael, so he zapped her with this terrible lack in her life, and she had to bear that reproach forever. I don't think that's the way God is. As a matter of fact, I know as I open my Bible, God is very clear. He wants people to come to their senses, as 1 Timothy puts it. Or as Peter wrote in his epistle, he's desiring that all people come to the, to come to the place of repentance. Right? He wants people to come to repentance. He doesn't want anybody to perish. He says, not his heart, as the prophet says, Jeremiah, he says, not his heart to inflict the sons of men with evil. That's not what God's all about. It is usually and most often in the Bible when we see it as it's explained, it's a means to an end and God's trying to do something with it. And in this case, David tries to convince his wife that she shouldn't be criticizing him. She ought to be supporting him. And then we see God stepping in with something only God can do. 
and he's inflicting some difficulty into Michael's life, and I would suggest to you and present to you that perhaps the reason was that he is wanting Michael in her pain to come to her senses and stop being a critic. Well, the sad part of this story is she never did because the text concludes with until the day of her death, and she never came around. But God was dealing with David's critics. God stepped in. He didn't ignore it. He was doing something about it. Put it this way in your outline, the thing we need to do when we hear all the criticism from these people is resist the temptation of being angry and putting up our defenses and having such a severe us-them mentality. What we need to do is we need to trust God to convince our critics. And God is good at doing that. He uses pain, he uses prosperity, he uses conflict, he uses demise, he uses illness, he uses financial collapse. He'll use a lot of things toward our critics to get them to come around. And I can't tell you, they always do, because most people don't, because broad is the way and wide is that gate that leads to destruction, and there are many are those who enter by it. That's what the Bible says. But God is always working on your critics. And you've got to trust God that though it looks like your critics sometimes go home feeling fine about their lives after they've just slammed your life, remember this, God is always in the business of turning people's hearts around. And sometimes they don't turn around. And we recognize that. But you've got to realize every Christian who's passionate about truth and godly and pursuing Christ in their lives, you've got to remember one day every bit of our passion will be vindicated. You know, in Philippians 2 it says that every knee is going to bow. Did you know that? It doesn't mean just ours and our churches before Christ in heaven. It means that every knee will bow, right? On earth, under earth, above earth, everybody. And every tongue, every tongue that's ever been created will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's a huge word. He's boss. He's king to the glory of God the Father. Now think that one through. Our prayer and our hope and our passion ought to be that our critics come to Christ. We want them to join the party. We don't want them to criticize it. We want them to join our camp in standing for truth and standing firm on God's word. And we need to say, God, I want you to work on them. Because all the apologetics in the world won't convince our critics. You know that, right? Because it's not a matter of the mind. Most often it's a matter of the heart. So you say to God, like David must have, you know, God, you work on her. You get her to come around. And I can't tell you he'll always bring them around, but oftentimes he does. God can turn your worst critic at work around. He can turn that guy who rolls his eyes. Every time he sees you bring up the right topic and the right thing, he can turn them around. But you've got to trust God to work on them. You defend your zeal. You defend your passion. But ultimately, God's going to have to work in an area of their life that you can never touch. Sophisticated 19th century author Kipling Joseph Kipling, as he was called popularly, was on a ship traveling across the Atlantic and happened to be on this ship with the wild-eyed Jesus freak called the General William Booth. If you know your history, you might remember William Booth was the founder of the Salvation Army, a pretty zealous group of wild-eyed Christians. In that day, they were no, no different. Tambourine-banging, armband-wearing, Groups of people sat around ringing bells and banging tambourines, singing about Christ and preaching. Now you can imagine, they've got this captive audience on this ship, right? And here's the fastidious Kipling sitting there, listening to all this ranting and raving about Christ. Well, he picks out Booth as the leader of this group, and he pulls him aside after one of their song 
sessions and he says to Booth, he says, in no uncertain terms, I fully disagree with your approach, shoving Jesus in our face all the time, singing your hymns. I'm tired of it. I don't like it. I disapprove of it. I love Booth's response. Booth said to Kipling, he said, you know, if I thought that standing on my hands and banging tambourines with my feet and singing all day long would lead one more person to Christ, would please God, would be what my Savior would want me to do. He said, that's what I'd be doing. I'd learn to do it. He said, if you think I'm passionate now, you haven't seen anything yet because I'm sold out for Christ. And if you don't like it, I'm sorry because my goal isn't to be popular. In essence, here's what he said. My goal is not to be popular. My goal is to serve and please Christ. If that's your goal, choose it today because you've got two options. And you can't always have both. Say today, I'm going to choose to be godly. And if they want to call me a Jesus freak, those respectable Americans, fine. Let them, let them call me that. I'm going to live for Christ. A compelling challenge from Pastor Mike Fabares today on Focal Point as we choose between being popular and being right. To hear this message from the beginning, go to focalpointradio.org. Well, Mike, you know, Christians have been saying that truth is under attack for decades. But wow, I don't think I've ever seen it this bad before. Yeah, Dave, the ideological battles that were taking place 30 years ago, those seem very tame compared to what's going on today. I mean, think about it. Just even the idea of defining a woman or a man. I mean, that men can get pregnant, that these doctors are out there trying to provide, uh, you know, gender-affirming care. It's just crazy, right? The people fighting for their right uh, to continue to slaughter the unborn. And it seems to be getting worse. And it's no wonder that the Bible is under attack, right? In the world's eyes, there's no such thing as the truth, right? Truth that sits there and tells us how to live. And yet, if you listen to Focal Point Radio, you know that, that the Bible's black and white. It's clear, right? There's no my truth, your truth. There's just the truth. And the truth doesn't change. It doesn't ever change. It doesn't matter what's popular today or tomorrow or in our culture or that culture, right? What matters is the truth. It's under attack, maybe like never before, but now's the time for us to continue to double down. We're not going to throw in the towel. We're not going to waver. We've got a responsibility, a God-given duty to defend and declare the truth of God's word. No apologies, right? That's what we do every single day here in Focal Point. That's our commitment. And I'm calling, inviting our faithful listeners this Christmas season to give in support of seeing this continue on through Focal Point. Your year-in gifts to Focal Point, they provide a financial means that are necessary to send this program out each and every day across the airwaves, online, and through our mobile app. That is just, it's so critical, it's essential. And we'd ask you to stand with us as we declare the truth, God's truth, in a culture where truth is under attack. Thank you so much for your special year-end gifts. And we couldn't do this, obviously, without friends like you. To make a donation, call 888-320-5885. That's 888 320 or give online at focalpointradio.org. When you send your special year-end gift today, we'll mail you a copy of Kevin Zuber's book, The Essential Scriptures, is our way of saying thank you. You'll appreciate having this Bible study tool by your side as you go deeper in God's Word. If you prefer sending your donation by mail, write to Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. 
Thank you for supporting the work of exploring and proclaiming the depths of Scripture. We couldn't do it without you. Well, this last week, we sent a gift to everyone we're in touch with by mail. It's an encouraging resource featuring seven requests for God found in the Lord's Prayer. This specially designed bookmark lists the daily petitions from the Lord's Prayer and has a magnetic backing so you can place it on your fridge as a daily encouragement and reminder to pray. To receive your special gift, just fill in the form when you go to focalpointradio.org slash magnet. That's focalpointradio.org slash magnet. Well, I'm Dave Drewy, inviting you back again tomorrow for a special program we call Ask Pastor Mike. We'll see you Friday as we celebrate the new year right here on Focal Point. Hi, Pastor Mike here. God's Word promises it'll never return void. So I wonder, how is God's Word moving in your heart right now? Drop us a line. Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to be praying for you here. Just go to focalpointradio.org. And then be sure to join us again tomorrow right here as we continue to explore the depths of Scripture. We'll see you then. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.